Hello and welcome to the third episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I am your host, Anne Wand. On today's show, we will be starting a mini-series looking at current research conducted by early career researchers, asking them how their work can be applied to a broader audience outside of academia. Our guests for today are Samantha Goodchild and Miriam Vidal of the Department of Linguistics at SOAS, University of London. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. As per usual, well, we'll start off by having each of you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Samantha, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, So I'm having black coffee, no sugar, no milk got me through the PhD so far. Um, So I'm just about to enter the fourth year of my PhD, so into the writing up status. Um, And as you said, I'm doing it at SOAS, University of London. Wonderful. And Miriam? So yeah, hi, I'm Miriam. Um, I'm having black coffee as well, because that's basically what we have in in the office every day. Um, and that's what makes me concentrate very well. And I'm also a fourth year PhD student at SOAS um, at the linguistics department, working in South Senegal, same as um, Samantha, but in a different village. Right. Well, um, I was wondering if you could both tell me a little bit of the work you do individually, and then afterwards you could tell us a bit about the work you do together. So Miriam, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, so um, I'm working as a social linguist in a village in the southern Casamance in Senegal, which is called Chibonkea. But I'm especially working in only one household in this um, in this village. So in this household, there are about 12 to 14 people living at the moment, and all of them are highly multilingual. So that means they use up to five or sometimes even six or seven languages on a daily basis. So that depends who comes to visit, of course. So this household is very multilingual and what I'm focusing on is why is it so multilingual and how does this constellation of languages work? Why do we need so many languages? Why don't they get less? But I'm especially focusing on Wolof, the biggest language in Senegal and um, concentrate on the role of Wolof. So for now, what I found so far is that not the languages have different roles, but it's really important to focus on the individual and the context determines the different choice of languages in this household. Oh, interesting. Uh, And Samantha, how about you? Um, So I'm working very near to Mia in a village called Essil. Um, We're only a few kilometers apart. I'm also a sociolinguist and I'm looking at a slightly different topic. So I'm looking at people's linguistic repertoires. So that means the different languages or varieties that people have acquired through their lifetimes and how, in my particular case, how these are linked to people's mobility. So in the area we work, it's very common for people to move around. It might be for work or education or to help out with family or to just go on an extended visit. And quite often when people will go to different towns or villages or even countries, but where we work is between Guinea-Bissau and the Gambia. So they will learn perhaps one or more languages or varieties that are spoken in the location they go to. So I'm looking at the link between repertoire and mobility. And generally I found that the more mobile people are, the more languages they speak. So then I look at what happens when these highly mobile people come back to the village where there's predominantly one language spoken, Jola Banjab, 
And do they engage in multilingual activities? Do they use all of the languages that they speak? That is very, very interesting. And I know that the two of you are doing some work together. So um, could you tell us a bit more about the work you do jointly? Yeah, so both of us are working in the Crossroads project at SOAS. Um, that's a research project investigating the unexplored side of multilingualism. And we are a team of international researchers based in London and also in, the, in Senegal, um, funded by the Leverhulme Trust. So if you want to find out more about the project, um, you can find us at soascrossroads.org. And that's where we got to know each other. Um, um, we have really similar interests and we can exchange very well. So that's why we started to work together a lot and both started to do our PhD there within the research project. But I think that was the first work we did together, wasn't it? So how did you come across this particular area? Because I would imagine, at least from my own experience as an anthropologist, it takes quite a bit of time to kind of work your way into um, a community, let alone a family. So to you, Miriam, how did you get to know this family and how did you get involved? So first of all, I, I was working in Senegal before I even um, worked in the Crossroads project. So that's why I, all, I already spoke um, Wolof before going there. But then within the Crossroads project, um, each of us were had to pick a village where they wanted to work in. So we have many researchers, but we all have our different foci. So um, I went to this village and there was already a researcher working there, Alexander Kobina. So he introduced me to some people. He was working on this language, Bainum Gubaha there, um, which is a different um, approach, but also very interesting. So he, um, he introduced me to different people and I told them what I need. So my first pilot field trip, I asked people what would be possible, where could I live? So I, I found a family um, who said they are willing to work with me. They are fine. Um, it's okay for them if I stay with them, if I learn their languages, if I film them in their daily conversations. So I spent a lot of time with them. Um, I lived with them and that's how I found them. It wasn't that easy. At first I even lived with other people and then I had to change because I thought there were more people around that actually were, even though it was a really nice family, but then they weren't, there was hardly anyone speaking during the day, so I had to change. But then I was there, and after living there for a couple of months, I started to turn on my equipment and started to film them and to speak with them while being there at the same time. Okay, and for you, Samantha? Um, well, before starting the PhD, I'd just after my master's at SOAS, um, there was a project run by Friederike Lubka, who's one of our supervisors and is the leader of the Crossroads project. So it was funded by the AHRC and was called um, Multilingual Skills Development Scheme. And as part of that, I got to go on a sort of like a work experience trip to Senegal with uh, Friederike for a few months um, in a different village. And there I was introduced to the multilingual setting. I did a small pilot study about language attitudes and multilingualism. And that really got me super interested in the setting. And then after coming back, I found out that there would be this bigger crossroads project. So I applied and I got through it like that. Great. Well, um, just to kind of inform the audience, so both of you work as sociolinguists. So I would imagine that your language skills um, would have to be quite good, unless I'm mistaken, but could you tell us as a sociolinguist, 
what do you do? What, what do you study on a general basis? As a sociolinguist, we look at the different languages, or rather, we look at language use. So how, why people speak the way they do? How do they communicate? What are the different social factors that might change the language someone is speaking in a conversation, for example? Um, yeah. I think what's really important um, in our research, in our personal research, is that we start with the individuals. We don't start with the languages, meaning mm -hmm. we look at the backgrounds of the individuals. We look at their social uh, environment. We look where did they grow up, why are, they, why are communications happening, and then out of that analyze the languages or the linguistic situation. Okay. Um, now, the work that you're looking at, one of the uh, presumably many things you're looking at is this concept of translanguaging within the various villages. Could you tell us a bit about what translanguaging is as opposed to maybe something like code switching? So an approach like code switching, which is sort of generally taken to be someone who switches from one language to another, that starts from uh, these a, a type of standardized language that may have already been documented or described by a linguist, and it follows certain rules. Now, we've sort of expanded the translanguaging approach. It originally started in educational settings, in uh, uh, bilingual educational settings in Wales, I believe, and it's sort of a more fluid approach to this switching of languages. For us, in our area, so as we said, people are highly multilingual, they may speak five, six, seven languages, but a lot of these languages haven't actually been documented or described before. So how do we know where the boundaries between one language or another are if people haven't worked on them before? So for us, it's, it's a much more fluid approach and it better reflects how we see people actually using the languages and their linguistic repertoires. And as, and as for, so I guess what I'm trying to understand is it seems like, because you had mentioned, um, Miriam, that quite a few of the, there's at least, what, up to seven languages that people can speak in one day. And if these languages don't follow a specific construct, would you say that a lot of them are spoken rather than written? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, in my in my setting, most of them are only spoken. In the setting which I uh, mentioned before, with the twelve to fourteen people, only about four are able to write. So those are for those people. They are spoken languages, even if you can write all of these languages. And some of them are are described better, some less. They also use French. They also use um, some Portuguese or, or Creole, which is based on Portuguese. But what is very interesting is how they use the languages. Like, there might be borders between those languages for certain institutions or for a linguist. So, for example, I can say this is a word from German and this is a word from French. But if they speak it, it's a very, very fluid um, process. So they don't separate the languages as such in their conversations. And it might be conscious or unconscious, but those languages are mixed and they're just like context dependent. Um, they're used context dependent and it make, it totally makes sense to them. There's no sense for them to use only one language in this conversation. 
So then how do both of you as sociolinguists, how do you learn these languages if they're being, if they're switching all the time and if they're so fluid? It's <clears throat> uh, actually quite an interesting point, I think. Um, I think as, well, for me anyway, as an outsider, I'm expected to learn, um, say, for example, Jola Banjal in actually a very monolingual way. So when people speak to me, they'll um, insist that they only speak Jodo Banjal, that they won't speak any Wolof or French because they know I'm learning it. But it's not how we see other people learning the different languages. Um, and I don't know, I think it's quite... Also, in such a multilingual context, we do... I try and learn as many of the languages as possible, but it's also not necessarily how everyone communicates in the villages because they won't all share the same languages in their multilingual repertoires. So it's not necessarily all of the languages are being used at any one time. So it's also... Um... There are certain languages and, and people can talk in a certain language about a certain topic, but not about different topics. So their languages are, are topic related as well. So if they, for example, talk about the market, they would use more Wolof um, in, the, in the area where I'm working. But if they would talk about private things, they would talk more, they would use more Bainam Gaburha, for example. But it's like, it's the same thing we do. Like that sounds so, so special but it is the thing that happens here as well but nobody really describes it so what we want to do is also to promote an awareness of that because for example in this setting in this um, podcast setting we have a language that we said we're going to speak we know we're going to speak um, English but if it's just me and Samantha and we are around our friends and our, our we're going out we share more than one language so our working language is definitely English because that's the language we write our PhD in but we also share German and French and Wolof and some words in a couple of other languages so when we are around our friends it's a really fluid use of languages we don't stick to one language we just use whatever feels right that's somehow using languages in a translanguaging uh, trans mm -hmm. mode so how would you say your research then, because I, I think you've already tapped into it, but how could this idea of translanguaging be applied to maybe a language education setting, especially for possibly language teachers or students who are trying to learn a second language? What, what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, it certainly obviously can be applied to educational settings. And I think that people shouldn't necessarily be so um, restricted. So it's not necessarily now is the time to speak French and now is the time to speak English. If you're speaking, say, in an institutional setting in class and you can't think of a word in a certain language, you can't think of it in French, for example, then you can just feel free to insert the English and continue. It shouldn't block your conversation. I think that's one of the more fluid aspects of it. I think maybe it's just like, um, if it's an educational setting, I mean, we're not really working in educational settings and we're not mm -hmm. really in direct contact with that. But um, to, I think to tell a student that they are only allowed in one language that sets certain borders and they could get shy through that. So maybe just let them speak um, however they feel it's right would be a good 
a good way to teach another language. So even if you are in an educational setting, of course you have to teach a language in a European setting, you have to teach a language as an entity because that's how we used to learn it and we can't just change that. But if you teach a language as a as an entity like Italian, you can still do that in a fluid way and, and have a creative way, but don't say you have to ask answer a question that I aren't ask you in English in Italian and it's the only right way to do it. <laughs> I think that's really interesting advice. Um, I know from the research that I've done in northern Italy, uh, there's a concern for some parents that if we introduce too many languages at an early age, that there will be a development of uh, maybe two semi-languages as opposed to the ability to have uh, um, a comprehension of multiple languages. Based on your experience working in these two villages, would you say that each of these people are fluent in all of these languages or would you say it's it's limited depending on context i think it's quite hard to define um someone as being not necessarily a fluent speaker of a language but like a competent speaker of a whole language there's i mean i grew up in a monolingual english family and there's plenty of settings where i wouldn't feel comfortable speaking english if i was to go i mean it's a very specialized setting but for example into like the law courts then I think my language use is completely inadequate for for dealing with a setting like that and that's me being in a mono a monolingual English speaker growing up as one anyway and I don't think anyone would say that I was a semi-speaker of English because I'm not comfortable in all settings where English is spoken and I think being fluent in a language is quite different from not being able to speak in different contexts. So I think in our context, people are very, it is context dependent, but they're fluent in all of the languages in the different areas that they speak them. Maybe we could say <laughs> the people there are fluent in speaking. They find a way to say the things, even if they mix languages. And it's amazing because you said, you talked about children. Like in the household where I'm living, there are little children, they're three or four years old. They switch the languages as the parents do fluidly. And it's really, really fascinating because it doesn't look like they would have any deficit because they speak more languages. It's really interesting how they learn in such a young age, how they are able to speak that many languages. Well, I, some of that, um, I, I know that Mark Turin had done some research on the language of play in South Africa, looking at how children, just as you said, can switch back and forth and that they could be on a playground and they could switch, uh, I think he said, up to nine languages, either through playing football or basketball or jumping rope, and that there, it doesn't need to be such a restricted space in order to say, okay, here's your textbook, this is what you need to learn, but that actually they can pick it up quite quickly, which I think is, is quite good to keep in mind. Uh, a couple of things I kind of wanted to run past you as I looked at some of the work you've done is in reference to societal monolingualism. So I remember you had said that one of the informants that you had interviewed was societally monolingual, but in reality, she was multilingual. So could you expand a bit more on that? Yeah, so I think that's in reference to one of my participants. So um, when I 
first went to Essil, um, this uh, woman was introduced to me as a Jola Banjal speaker. Um, and she knew that I was there to, well, to learn Jola Banjal, but also to study multilingualism as well. So she was quite concerned that she would only speak to me in Jola Banjal, that I should really should learn it. And as I spent more and more time with her, and I observed her daily practices, it became apparent that she was also a Wolof speaker as well, that she also acquired French um, and also Creole and Mandinka as well. But it doesn't, even though she uses these languages, not necessarily all of them on a daily basis, she mainly identifies with Jola Banjal. What I think is worth mentioning, I think you did a good job, is that um, social monolingualism can actually be an identifying marker. So it seems to me that the language that you identify with, so I would maybe call myself uh, a native English speaker, but that doesn't mean I don't speak Italian, that doesn't mean I don't speak French, but my identifying markers as an English speaker. Would you say it's the same for them as well? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good parallel to draw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Can I add something to that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it is especially because we talked about mobility before. It's especially like that when you are in this village setting. Like your language of identity might change if you go somewhere else or like that's like the language she identifies there. Yeah. But what I've seen is like the languages I'm working on, like Bainungubur, it's such a small language. So I've seen um, Bainungubur speakers in Dakar and sometimes if they like if they don't want to explain what Bainungubaha is, because there are not a lot of speakers, and someone else sees them and they say, oh, yeah, I'm from the Kazimas. So they say, so you're a Chola speaker? And they say, yeah, I'm a Chola speaker. Just because they don't want to explain in that certain in certain situations what Bainungubaha is. So it's really interesting how they adopt their, um, adapt their identity to different settings. That's very, very interesting. Um, I can actually think in terms of research that I've done where I can remember a German-speaking woman, uh, normally where I did work in South Tyrol, uh, you have to do a language census every 10 years, and that language census determines where you go to work. And she had decided that she wanted to get a certain job working at an Italian school. So instead of ticking the box saying, oh, I'm a German speaker, therefore I'm only entitled to these jobs, she just decided, you know what? They don't need to know. Today, I'm an Italian speaker. So technically, legally, she's an Italian speaker, even though she's actually German. But as you said, it's easier than trying to go through a variety of loopholes when you could just go, I'll just take a box. Uh, now, you had mentioned that there was some linguistic material that you would like the audience to know about. Could you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Do you want to do this one? That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Um, recently, we've been working um, on these free online teaching materials, um, and they're centered around social linguistics and multilingualism. They're mainly aimed at university students, um, at undergraduates and postgraduates. And they were actually um, based around a film uh, it's called Can Rachel. It's an ethno-fiction documentary. And it was filmed in the village where I went to do work experience uh, in Senegal. So it's very close to our villages now, maybe about 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very similar multilingual setting. 
So based on clips from these films, um, we've come up with um, a series of um, five modules on different topics. So looking at language repertoires, language attitudes, um, using this uh, Senegalese setting to explain different uh, current trends in social linguistics. Thank you. We'll leave a link in the description. And that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wand. I'd also like to thank Samantha Goodchild and Miriam Vidal for joining us at the studio this afternoon. For those of you who enjoyed the show, Coffee and Cocktails is planning on moving to iTunes later this fall. In the meantime, feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails 1, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes, as well as contact me on Twitter at Anne Wand 1. That's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.